All right, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning to start, but we're really going to be all over the place. The nature of this series is that we spend a little less time in one, uh, one text and a little more time kind of bouncing all over the place. Some of you maybe even are more used to that uh, as, a, as a preaching style, not our normal thing here, but uh, really looking forward to what God has for us. Last week, uh, we kind of introduced the theme to the series, kind of served as an introduction for us, this series of uh, Come Lord Jesus, talking about the, the first advent and the second advent and how those things work together and how those things serve to instruct us. We talked about how God's people uh, have always been and continue to be today awaiting people. And this morning we're going we're gonna to look at in our first Sunday of Advent how our, our prophet's candle that we have uh, burning over here, how some of that, that uh, gives us hope and how our waiting is not a waiting in despair, kind of a reserved uh, hopelessness, but instead it is a waiting that is designed to be pregnant with hope. And so that is what we will be uh, talking about and, uh, and what we'll be, be covering. We love to travel as a, a family, and inevitably that travel leads to a question that Emily will usually ask at some point after we're, we're done at whatever destination that we're at. Uh, and my answer is always the same, but she'll still ask the same question either way. Uh, and she will ask, if you could live anywhere, where would you want to live? This question comes up all the time in our house. I don't know if you guys uh, have these type of discussions, but this comes up. And, and she'll, so she'll ask, if you could live anywhere, where, where would you want to live? Her answer is usually tied to a beach somewhere. Uh, I don't know which beach it is. just kind of depends on which beach we were at. But a beach somewhere is usually what she will pick. And I will say... I like where we're at because I like to have all four of my seasons. I like the heat in summer. I like the cold in winter. I like the green and the, the newness in spring. And I like the, the color and then even uh, kind of where we are right now, kind of the barrenness of the back end of fall. I like all of it. All of it. I, I mean, I, I love the rhythm that, that four seasons brings to life. I love that rhythm. And part of the reason is because that rhythm has taught me to, to appreciate the, 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 the temporary nature of so many things. I'm just kind of curious, how many people in here, just based on, on seasons, would say that they are a uh, summer person? Summer is their favorite season. That's not as many as I thought it would be. All right, how many people would say, uh, would say spring? All right, wait, you can't, you can't put your hand up for all of them, so all right. Uh, who would say, who would say fall? That's most, that's what I figure fall is, is most. Maybe that's because it's tied to football season, or maybe there'd be a reason not to like, uh, fall for, for some of us Tennessee fans over the years. Uh, and how many of you crazies would say winter is your favorite? All right. So we definitely got some winter people in here too, more than I thought. We've got, I think we have more winter people than summer people, which explains a lot to me, honestly. Um, but uh, I, I love all four of the seasons. Uh, fall would be my favorite, but, but I like whichever one we're, we're in. The back end of winter gets a little bit long. It could be a few weeks shorter, but outside of that, I, I love it, and I love the rhythm that it, that it, all, uh, that it all brings. And the, like I said, the temporary nature, to know that even in the midst of where we are now, as things are getting colder, as things are dying off, as things get more brown and all the, the leaves come off the trees, to know that that is a season, but that new life is coming 
even whenever you get through all the cold in the winter, no matter how cold it is, no matter how much snow we get or don't get or, or how deep that cold gets, we know that there is a thaw that will come. Just like Narnia, uh, the white witch's curse does not last uh, forever. All right, so this is what Advent does for us, and this is why we spend so much time talking about the Advent season here at Providence and less time talking about the Christmas season. It helps us find a rhythm in a world that tells us that we are, we are only moving in a, in a straight line. You, you guys remember, I, I remember staying home uh, when, when I was a kid, and when you would stay home sick, uh, you would stay home, and, and there would be like these random talk shows you didn't care about, but you were really just waiting to watch The Price is Right. When you would stay home sick, you wanted to watch The Price is Right. And I remember when you would watch The Price is Right, I remember one particular game. Plinko was always my favorite. I love Plinko. Um, but there's one that I always remembered, in part because it was so annoying and you always knew it was on. It was this little, like, yodeling guy. Do you remember the yodeling guy? Uh, and, and, yeah, and he, exactly, he was always going up. That's the only direction that he went. And he would just yodel and go straight up. And our culture says that's how you are supposed to be. You're supposed to always be going up in a straight line, progressing, uh, getting, getting higher, better, more. I don't even know the object of that game. I don't, I don't remember exactly how it worked. But I just remember that visual image of the yodeling guy going straight up the mountain. And the premise that our culture operates on is just that. That more is better, that faster is better, uh, that, that the steady climb up the ladder is always better. And Advent is meant to make us stop and acknowledge that that is not true. That that is not true. And it doesn't reflect life at all. That is not how life works. Just like Shay said, it is ironic that, that the Christmas season, as most of us know it, the busiest season of the year, the one where we're told to be jolly and merry and bright, is actually a giant exercise in missing the point of what Advent should teach us. Now we get there to the jolly and the merry and the bright. We of all people who, who celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God should be a people uh, that, that celebrate a worthy, with, with a worthy party of the incarnation. No doubt we should get there. But Advent is meant to make us stop and pause and helps our heart to stop and consider a better rhythm for our lives than the constant pursuit of something higher and better. It's meant to make us recognize that amidst a culture built to pursue advancement and production, that we as humans uh, are not built exclusively for that. That's not to say we shouldn't pursue being better. By the end of the month, whenever we get close to January 1st, I will undoubtedly preach a, a sermon. I've done it every year. It's one of my favorite sermons of the year, imploring you to do just that, to be better in the coming year, to pursue Christ in a way where you grow and where you can look back on the previous year and say, I'm not where I was. I have gotten better. I have advanced. But that is not the sum total of the Christian life. And for so many of us, we have been told that if you are a good Christian, you are a Christian that is constantly moving up that, that ladder, yodeling your whole way along. But that is not at all how life works. And so Advent helps us to stop and to recognize what life really is instead of something that we think it should be about. Because that pursuit constantly up the mountain 
It, two, two, two reasons why that is not healthy for us to live that way at all times. One, it's wholly unsustainable. We cannot at all times be in a place where we are constantly pursuing something and never resting. To constantly chase the, the, the never-ending good enough, but instead to simply be and to rest in Christ. And the second reason that it's not good to continue to do that is because this life is too hard, this world is too broken to not have that, that, that continual pursuit up broken by something, stumbled upon by something. Any athlete will tell you that they can do anything unless they're injured. And if they get injured, then that, that will derail their pursuit of whatever it is that they are after. Injuries have derailed many a promising career. Bodies break down in this world due to the brokenness of this world. That is a small way that we see that this truth plays out, that we can't continually, to, to, can't continually pursue that, that upward uh, trajectory. But all over this congregation this morning, there are so many that are staring a far greater brokenness in the face, from hurting homes to sickness to bodies that don't, won't do what they're supposed to do, to secret sin, to loss of loved ones, to infertility, to, 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 all, to all these things that recognize, literally the, the, the list is endless of the ways in which this world will sabotage our pursuit of the, the, the better and of, of, of excellence and of all of these things, that pursuit of perfection that is so unattainable. It's because all of this world has been subject to futility and the curse, and we all feel it deeply. Now, in different ways for different people, maybe it's something you carry with yourself and in yourself because of something that you are or something that you've done, or maybe it's because of something that this world has brought upon you. Maybe it's because of sickness. Maybe it's because of other people's sin. But we all carry that weight that this world is not what it's supposed to be. And Advent helps us to stop pretending that all is well and that that pursuit up the mountain is all that matters. It helps us to lament the pain and the suffering and the disorientation that comes with all of that. But here's the thing. That's not all Advent is. Advent teaches us to stop and to sit and to lament. You probably don't associate that with December. Probably associate being merry with December. But the church calendar teaches us to stop and lament during this time but not to do so in a hopeless wail, but in a hope-filled waiting. So why should we stop and lament when the rest of the world is saying, be merry? Shouldn't we as Christians be the most merry of them all? After all, Proverbs 13, 12 says, a hope delayed makes the heart sick. And so if that's true, and so many of us feel the weight of that, a hope delayed this morning. How are we supposed to respond to that? So my hope is to answer that question this morning. Let's read from Isaiah chapter 9 to kind of kick us off this morning, a verse that you will hear more than just in here this morning. You will hear, uh, you will hear all, all month, I'm sure, uh, in various different places. But Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their uh, the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The, the dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Now this is a classic Christmas text. But there are all kinds of things that we could spend tons of time on uh, this morning that we always move right past parts of this at Christmas. We love the for unto us and the prince of peace and the God with us and all of those things. We love all of those parts, but we skip right over the part where it says that you've shattered the oppressive yoke and that you have uh, and that the government will be on his shoulders and that his dominion will never end. We just kind of move right past that because that doesn't really fit the Christmas narrative and and frankly, if you look at the, the Gospels, it doesn't really fit the Gospel narrative. And so we move right past it. And what we have in this text is a great example of how passages like this in the Bible operate. We talked about this last week just a little bit. Uh, but we're going to have to do a little bit of theology this morning. We're going to have to do a little bit of uh, Bible study, study kind of training this morning. But I promise there's a payoff in the end, so, so stick with me. Oftentimes, the Bible will, will have a section of verses in prophecy. When you read them, some of them make perfect sense. You can identify where they're talking about a prophecy that you have seen fulfilled in Scripture. They, they line up. You can say, I know what that's talking about. That's talking about this, where this happened in Luke's Gospel, or where this happened happened in Matthew's gospel or Matthew makes it very clear and he says this is how this is fulfilled this is what Matthew does with this very passage he says that the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage but what happens so often in the old testament is that you get a, a section of prophecy so here you have these these uh like seven verses here you have them and they talk about things that have happened and things that will happen in the coming of Jesus, but they, they, they interlace them, they make them work together, right? So we, we talked about this last week. And so what you end up getting is you get a prophecy where some of it is fulfilled and some of it is not quite fulfilled yet. Maybe if you want to squint and kind of reinterpret it just a little bit. But I think we can all agree when we read this in Isaiah 9, some of this we can see in the Christmas story and some of this we just can't. And so then the question becomes, do we just disregard this other stuff? What's going on with this other stuff here? What, what is this that is happening? And so what you have is a prophecy that refers to two different and distinct events that with a significant amount of time in between them, but the, the, the prophet will look at them together. And so what you see is that this is a prophecy here in Isaiah 9 uh, about the Messiah and God's work that he will do through the anticipated Messiah. So the problem that we run into, though, is when the Jews read this, they assumed that the Messiah would do all of this work in this prophecy at the same time. That all of this would come true in the same moment. 
and that the kingdom that, that, that this Messiah establishes would be one that would, would be vast, that would know no end and, and would be a kingdom here on earth. It would be the kingdom of Israel and it would go out forever. Their assumption, and I think understandably, is that this would all happen together, that the rod of the oppressors would be broken by the Messiah, that a kingdom would be established and this would all be done through this promised child that would be given to us. You hear this in Zechariah's prayer in his Benedictus, classic story in Luke 1. I think I've read it almost or preached it almost every year uh, that, that I've been here at Providence. And, 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 and it's classic. You can hear it echoed in the Benedictus, Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is after, uh, this is after uh, John, is, uh, John the Baptist is born. Zechariah is now able to speak for the first time after uh, his whole drama of being made uh, where he could not speak because he, he kind of didn't really believe whenever the angel said that they were going to have a child. And this is what he says. He says, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. All good so far. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by his mouth and of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. So do you hear this in his prayers? He expects the Messiah to do this. He expects the enemies to be eliminated. He expects the rod of the oppressor to be broken. Yet we know that Jesus never does this. When Jesus dies, he dies at the hands of these enemies that he's supposed to liberate the Jewish people from. So what do we do with this? How how does this all make sense? The oppression that Jesus was supposed to eliminate is actually the oppression that ends up getting him killed. There is no kingdom established. There is no rod broken. No revolution happens from Jesus. So what is going on here? What we see is that some of this prophecy has taken place and some of it will take place when Jesus comes again. This is in part why we call this series Come Lord Jesus, because we are both looking back to when that prayer was answered by the coming of Jesus the first time, and we are also looking forward to the time when the, 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 the coming of Jesus, when he, will, uh, when, when he will return and fulfill the rest of these prophecies that are still left. You see, the coming of Jesus is what set the wheels in motion. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of this mountain of prophecies in the Old Testament. This mountain of prophecies about a God who, who keeps his, his, his covenant even when his people are unfaithful to its terms. It's about a God that has begun something in Jesus' first coming that is many ways yet to be completed. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was talking about the mission he came to accomplish. But the reverberations of that mission are still being felt today. You see, we live in something of an odd time in history. We live between the two advents of Jesus. And that word advent just means coming of Jesus. So we live between the two advents of Jesus. And you say, well, 2,000 years seems like a long time. It doesn't seem to me like it's that, that odd of a time in, in history. It doesn't seem that unique. And perhaps to us that is true. But in the grand picture, it really isn't. 
in the, in, in the big picture, when you see the entire, uh, the entire forest, we have the, the time before the fall where there was no sin. This world was not broken. We did not feel the weight of a, of a broken world on our bodies, on our minds, on our spirit. But then we have the time frame after the fall that we entered into because of sin. The biblical writers call this the, the present time or the, the present world. That's a way that it's often referred to. So, so you can say that, that the, this present time, this is what Paul uh, talks about whenever he, he says that. This is the world you and I probably know best. The world where we suffer, where people die, where marriages collapse, where orphanages and children's hospitals exist, where we wrestle with our sin, where all the signs of brokenness are all around us all the time. This is the world that has existed since the fall. But what makes our time here on earth so unique is that while that world, that age, this present time, this present age is is still here, there is a competing world that exists kind of parallel to that one. A competing world or age that, that overlaps and will eventually end what we know as this present world. Here's how one author describes it. It exists, this, this, um, the, these, two, these two different, the present age and the age to come, they, is, they exist together. And it says, it exists on borrowed time because the beginning of another age established by the finished work of Jesus Christ. His act of redemption defeated death, made atonement for sin, thwarted the works of the devil, and provided a means whereby the kingdom of heaven might eventually become a full reality on earth. I love how it says that at the very beginning. This present age exists on borrowed time. It will not always be like this. This is, this, is, this is what we call, this is what theologians call inaugurated eschatology. Now, I know that sounds big, uh, but, but just follow the two words there. So inaugurated, think of like an inaugural event, the first event, the beginning of something. So inaugurated, the beginning, eschatology is about the end times. So the beginning of the end. We live in a place, in a time, where there is the beginning of the end that is happening. In a very real sense, Christmas is the the fulcrum of the the, the story, or you could say larger, the incarnation of Jesus. So from Christmas to his resurrection is the the, the fulcrum of the story that the Bible hinges on, and, and that that fulcrum there is what, what kind of separates things, and it is the, the incarnation is the beginning of the end. We call that eventual reality that is to come, the age to come. And this is what Advent is all about. It's the sitting between the two Advents and the uncomfortable tension that exists in those two things. Acknowledging all the ways that that tension is there. That these overlapping ages provide with us some very visceral truths that we have to reckon with. Part of which is that this world is broken and none of us will escape its sting. None of us. We will all sin. And we will all be sinned against. We will all suffer. We will all feel the sting of death. No one escapes any of these things. 
no matter how much our society builds itself and, and builds our, our lives around progress and efficiency and speed, we will always run up against the work of sin and the works of Satan. Always. This world has been subjected to it. But in all of those things, Paul comes to us and he says, he says, do not grieve as those with no hope, but as ones who grieve with a hope that is rooted in the first incarnation, in Christmas and Easter. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see Paul's logic there? The incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is our best weapon against the hopelessness of this present age. This is what Paul teaches us. And Paul will go on, if you keep reading in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul will go on the rest of the chapter to talk about the hope that is found when Jesus returns and judges the unrighteous. And so this is how Advent works. We grieve the present age, and we long for the age to come. And we root that longing in the fact that Jesus came once, and he will come Again, listen to how Isaiah says this in chapter 25, a section of prophecy in Isaiah that is all about, uh, that many would call apocalyptic prophecy. It's all about end times type of things. So Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, Fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us this is the lord we have waited for him let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation so today we rejoice in the final salvation that we have waited for when death is fully defeated when the feast is ours to dine with one another because of the death and the suffering and sin, they are no more. And Christ has redeemed all of those things, swallowed those things up. And who is it that gets all of those beautiful things? Those that have waited for him and then find joy in his salvation. Romans 8, Paul says it this way. Romans 8, 18 through 25. You can turn there, it's pretty... Long section here, Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. 
For the creation was subject to futility. This world is broken. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is, that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This text so beautifully illustrates for us the reality in which we currently live. So much waiting. So much anticipation. Anticipation of the day when the creation that was broken by sin, which groans under the strain of that sin, the creation longs for the day when it will be set free from the death and the decay and and, and turned over to flourishing and new life. But notice in verse 23, not everything is waiting for another day. I think this is important. Not everything is waiting for another day. In this overlapping time, we wait with hope, but we also have something right now. It says that the Spirit is the first fruits of this new and redeemed creation. So yes, we wait for something better, but that doesn't mean we are absent of good things now. We do not wait alone. We have the Spirit, indwelled by God's Spirit, rejoicing in that hope, the first fruits of what is to come. So do you see how this works together? Do you see how these things all tie together? We have the first taste of this kingdom that is to come, the feast that Isaiah talks about. The feast that he says is ours, the the, the prime cuts of meat, the well-aged wine, the the, the feasting and the joy, all of that 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 waits in front of us, we have the first taste of that, the kind of appetizer to that. The wedding supper of the Lamb where there is no more sin, no more tears, it is all gone, that feast that awaits us, but we already have the first taste of that. So this is not all empty and vain hoping. So let's go back to Proverbs chapter 12. Hope delayed makes the heart sick. The finishing of that proverb says, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The wisdom of Proverbs tells us that a hope that is forever deferred, that is not life-giving. Some of us know the, the sense of what that means. Just, just take the, 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 the kid that is so like completely enamored with that one gift that they want. Been asking for it all year. And then Christmas comes, there is no gift, and it's like, eh. Man, talk about the Christmas blues. That is, that is like, oh man, I, just, I thought I was going to get this thing, but I didn't get it. And so they're sad and disappointed. Proverbs tells us that 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 a hope that is forever deferred is not life-giving, but it is life-sucking. It takes the life 
from us. It will take our breath. It will take our joy. It will take all of these things. But when a hope is fulfilled, it is the very essence of new life. So which are we right now? Are we a hope deferred? Or are we a tree that is growing in life? A hope deferred or a desire fulfilled? In this world, there is no doubt that it sure can feel like that we are a hope deferred. That hope can be hard to find. So many of us feel the effects of the sin of this world right now. The sin in our own lives right now. The sorrow of death right now. The sorrow of suffering right now. And hope is so hard to find. And for a season that will rob you of that, that can rob you of life and joy and hope. But the imagery here from Proverbs is the perfect way to describe where we are right now in this moment, in the time between the two ages, this, this borrowed time that, that we talked about. He describes the hope-filled uh, heart as a, as a tree of life. And that analogy works so well for us. If you came in this morning, if you came in the lobby, you may have seen our Christmas tree out here fully decorated, all the ornaments, all the lights. Everything looks pretty. Everything looks proper. Everything looks great. It's there for you to take a picture in front of. It's there for you to, to, to put on your Christmas cards, whatever you want to do with it. It is there. It's designed to, to look good. But, but you would have passed by on your left side when you walked in a tree that is barren. A tree that has no greenery on it at all. A tree that is nothing but, but sticks. And it is not nearly as pretty as the Christmas tree. But that tree has ornaments that are on it that are designed to make us remember all the times that God has been faithful to his people and faithful to his promise. That is our Jesse tree. It is designed to teach us about hope in the midst of barrenness and and this is where we see it here uh, in Advent. We see it there in, in that tree, and, and, and it represents the ways that God has maintained the hope of people in always remembering them. And the image from Isaiah chapter 11, which, which is where we get the idea for the Jesse tree, is the perfect, the perfect picture to, to, to kind of carry on the wisdom of Proverbs. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 says this. Then a shoot, a, a, a branch, a small branch, will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so as we have the prophet's candle, we see the prophet talking about this branch of life that will come from a stump that... that that by all means looks like, by all appearances, looks like it's dead. Looks like it is done. But a shoot, a branch, new life will come. Proverbs says, a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And Jesus is the shoot that grows from the stump of that tree. A sign of life in the midst of apparent barrenness and death. What a beautiful picture. So where are we? We are a hope being fulfilled. 
We are a hope in the midst of darkness and sin and suffering, but knowing that when Jesus comes, we will have the full tree of life with which we are able to dine under in the wedding supper of the Lamb. The age to come breaking into this present world to give us hope and a future. That is the Christmas story, and it is the story of all of those who love and wait and long for Jesus. And that is why we pray, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, during this season, let us, let us not get hung up in this constant pursuit of something bigger and better and greater. Let us find time and a place to stop and to rest, to lament what has been lost in this year and in this season, but to do so as a people who grieve with hope. That we look upon this world that has been broken by sin, that has been marred by sin, that has been destroyed in many ways by sin but know that it has been subject to all of that in hope. And for those in here that do not feel the, 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 the beauty of that hope, Father, I pray that this would be a season where they can lament and then they can see the, the, the life that comes from hope and that they would find it again. And for those that are so busy that they don't even take the time to consider these categories, help us to stop and to remember and to worship and to pray and to long to see you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.